Are on-campus smoking bans doing more harm than good? How babies' big eyes give us an urge to nurture them? And the Brock Turner sexual assault case takes over the internet. Hello and welcome to the third episode of APN Educational Media's Week in Review podcast, Talking Eds. My name is Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor here at APN. I'm joined by education editor James Wells from Campus Review and Education Review. Hi, James. Hi. And Lauren Smith, coiner of the Talking Eds title from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for the shout out. No problems. So Talking Eds is our weekly discussion on everything happening in education from preschool with Lauren's title, Early Learning Review, through primary and high school with Education Review and tertiary education with Campus Review. And those last two are James's titles. I'm the news editor, so I work across all three. And the aim of this podcast is to look back on the biggest stories from the week and discuss some of them in a bit of detail. And we're starting at uni this week, James, and you spoke to quite the iconoclast when it comes to smoking. James, tell us more. Well, uh, essentially the story is about that campus cigarettes, cigarette bans could be harming smoking, could be harming smokers. Not harming smokers, harming smoky, smokers. I can't speak today. Anyway, what's Simone Dennis? She's an ANU anthropologist and... She's recently completed a, st- a 10-year study on smoking in Australia and the messages we receive about not smoking and smoking and smoking's bad for you and all that. And she commented that the very strong and uh, messages we receive, like the very graphic stuff you see on plain packaging, the, the, the ads you see, the anti-smoking ads, and also the hardline measures, like you can't smoke it in Sydney, you can't smoke in outdoor areas and restaurants and stuff like that. I don't like think that. you can smoke in Mountain Place in Sydney anymore, which is the, the main thoroughfare through the mm, city. I think yeah. they're, they're banned smoking throughout that. A lot of country towns, you can't smoke in the main street and stuff like that. But she basically says it doesn't really cause people to stop smoking. They just take it somewhere else and they smoke harder. Like they, they may smoke more cigarettes at once before they have to go to these areas. And with you, a lot of universities have blanket smoking bans as well. And the point um, remains the same, whereby a lot of people, they, they smoke like five cigarettes at home before they go to uni. So they have a nicotine hit. Or they, or they, just, or they smoke at uni and campuses are notoriously huge and really it's the issue is really hard to police and we've had a lot of comments on this story and people have been react, react, reacting negatively to dennis's suggestion saying uh touting the old line that um smoking is disgusting and that these bands aren't actually aren't for the smokers they're to minimize the harm of of secondhand smoke outdoors to people who don't smoke which is actually there's no scientific consensus to say that um, outdoor secondhand smoke actually harms. There's there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in this area. I was reading this story, and what what sort of re- reminded me of sort of you know my uni days when the smoking bans were just coming into force. We're going back ten years now. And what what would happen is that I was at ANU, and they would just keep moving the lines where you could smoke further away from where people gathered. So you know away from the 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 restaurant areas, the bar areas, away from the the lecture theatres, just moving the line further and further. And what would happen is, as they moved the line, the smokers would just congregate on the other side of it, and you would walk through, you know, ten, twelve people having a cigarette. And you'll probably see that if you walk down the street, uh, wherever you wherever you listen to this podcast, you know, if you walk past like a, a backpackers, which is the last class of people that still smoke on mass, they all they all huddle at the nearest point to the entrance to the backpackers to smoke, and so that's what these smoking bans do is they just move the line where you can smoke further away. Uh, I tend to think that if you're a non-smoker, you know, you want the line as far away from you as possible. If you are, if you are a smoker, you probably want the line as close to where you are. I have to say though, I have limited sympathy for the uni smokers because 
they're young enough to know that smoking causes cancer and other illnesses. It's not like they're from the generations that didn't know and then mm. got addicted and then couldn't really do anything about it. They know the risks. They've still chosen to smoke. So should we have that much sympathy for them? Well, reading Dennis's quotes, people will smoke in other places, like increasingly in the home, which obviously presents a danger to other people in the home who aren't smoking. So I'm not really sure what Dennis wants, because how are we going to stop people smoking if we don't just make it as irritating and frustrating as possible for them? Mm, she didn't really mention that. I no. saw, though, um, in the article, plain packaging was mentioned and um, the disease pictures that are now displayed on smoking packets, and that actually has been shown to have a really positive effect in terms of lowering the rates of smoking. So something's working. Yeah, I, I tend to think that the, the best way to, to get people to, to stop smoking is to take an attack from every angle, make it as expensive as possible, make it as mm. unappealing as possible, get rid of the branding, uh, make it so that the only places you can smoke are in your own home, you know, and then make it illegal to smoke in your own home if there are kids in there. Just make it as, as difficult as possible and then I think that will cause people to rethink the habit. Try pitching that idea to David Lionhelm. Well, I've got a double dissolution coming up so he, he might not be an issue to deal with very soon. <laughs> Uh, Lauren, you picked up on a very amusing yarn this week, uh, out of Oxford University, no less. Tell us about babies manipulating us for love. So, um, just a correction um, to <laughs> AAP, actually, not Patrick, because this came from, a, from an AAP piece. Um, in that babies aren't actually manipulating us, it's just an evolutionary thing. And um, so they've developed these characteristics that we think of as cute, such as chubby cheeks and big eyes and you know a little high-pitched voice and a cute laugh um, and they've done that specifically so that we are encouraged to care for them and this is actually not new research but what is new what these researchers led by uh, a professor Morton Kringlebach I really wanted to say that <laughs> what they found is that um, babies actually in invoke all of our senses to think that they're cute um, so um, that includes sounds and smells, for instance. So uh, as I referred to, their, their laugh, for instance, their bubbling laughter, <laughs> as the article says. Um, and this is, um, uh, this is what they call the, one of the most basic and powerful forces shaping our behaviour. So, and, and the other interesting thing is that um, when babies do these things and you know, look this way, they actually ignite portions of the brain that elicit pleasure, similar to when we eat really delicious food or listen to good music. Mm. So we have this neurological response. So smells. <laughs> when you have to change a nappy, you're supposed to elicit <laughs> a neurological response, which you love. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. It must be that um, freshly washed baby smell, <laughs> maybe, because I can't think of other baby smells that are particularly pleasurable. But what do you think, Patrick? Well, I, I think that it, I've long suspected uh, babies of using uh, secretive mojo in order to, to gain people's attention mm -hmm. and to encourage the, uh, a want in them in other people, but not in me. So I'm, I'm impressed that Oxford has finally uh, backed this up with a study. Well, Oxford actually would say that you are affected because this affects men and women regardless of their um, childbearing or childrearing status. So you're actually not immune. The, I was uh, incidentally I was asked by a friend of mine if I wanted kids the other day I'm childless and I uh, at the same time there were, they were down at Vivid Sydney and uh, a mother was marshalling her, her brood 
onto her bus and she said, now before we get before we get on the bus to go home, do any of you need to go to the toilet? And I looked at my friend and I said, that is the reason I never want to have kids. I never want to have to ask anybody that question. Well, that's a, a great reason for that. I wasn't manipulated in any way yeah. by any cuteness. Yeah. How old were these kids though? Maybe they got past the oh, cute stage and like she, it was like a, the the phrase. It was like a, a quite a large brood. I I, I sympathised, but I, I wasn't I wasn't envious of her. What about puppies? Do they do the same thing? And kittens? Yeah, they do mm. actually. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more of a full of puppies and kittens and babies. You'll get there. Yeah. You'll want babies. The the, the 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 changing tangent just briefly. That uh, the meow that cats make is actually uh, they actually have developed that for the sake of humans mm. the uh, cats don't meow to communicate with each other but just to win favour from human beings that's a learnt trait <laughs> well, we always knew the cats were customised cats so. are manipulative yeah. yeah they're evil yeah Yeah. well the in part three we're going to talk about uh, a slightly more serious uh, topic but one still that has some elements of humour in it and that is the Brock Turner uh, sexual assault case that uh, exploded onto the internet this week and uh, I'll start by going back to 18 January 2015 Brock Turner Stanford student and apparently a promising swimmer met a 23 year old woman at a party later that night he was interrupted by two Swedish exchange students that sec- while sexually assaulting the student behind a dumpster near the party she was unconscious from alcohol consumption He was convicted in March this year of three felony counts, assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. And the maximum penalty for these crimes is 14 years in California, and prosecutors had asked for six years. Earlier this week, he was sentenced to six months in prison, but with good behaviour, could be released in only three months. And the case has become well-known in university circles, and then it blew into the public realm this week when the victim's 7,000-word statement became public. It was a very powerful statement when she spoke about how the, the crime and the assault that was committed against her has affected her. While at the same time, uh, the, a statement from the rapist Brock Turner's father was also released to the public, and the contrast between them was quite stunning because the, the father describes... Uh, his son raping an unconscious woman as 20 minutes of action. And he also included uh, quite a, a, a long part about the food that his son can no longer enjoy cooking and eating uh, as a result of the rape that he committed. So I just wanted to uh, have a chat with, uh, with you both about this idea of rape culture at universities and sort of what we can learn about it. So James, to start with you as the, the editor of Campus Review, uh, what are your sort of thoughts about rape culture and your thoughts on this case and how it's captured the imagination. Rape culture at universities, it depends on which part of the university you go to. Um, I, I'd, I'd say what night, what night out. It may be at the university, it may be the uni bar or something. It, it exists in some circles in, within universities, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it's pervasive throughout the entire university structure. Like, it, I think it exists in circles such as Sydney Uni's um, Wesley College, which has been in the media re- recently. So you're saying it exists at sort of like at group level, so mm. that if you have a, a, a rugby team or a sports team or a college, that is sort of a, a, an environment, a closed environment where this sort of uh, this sort of issue can ferment and grow and become a big problem. But you're saying that at university level, at the broad level, 
it is not as it is not as pervasive. That's exactly yes what I'm saying. But the big counterpoint to that also is that universities have been notoriously bad at handling sexual assault and and sexual harassment complaints from students and even staff. They're notoriously bad. And now there's there's also an advocacy group which was set up in the US responding to their um, campus rapes. And that's going to be coming to Australia, and they're, and they're basically building up a case against universities to sue. The I, I spoke uh, earlier today with Heidi Lapalia, and she's the women's officer at the National Union of Students. And I'm going to put this uh, interview up as a podcast on Canberra's Review for you to listen to in full. And one of the things that she spoke about is that the biggest, the, the first step we can take to sort of correct this course, and she's adamant that a rape culture does exist is that we can have better lines of reporting and investigation so that if a person is sexually assaulted and they report it, that it is investigated thoroughly and properly in a way that will secure a conviction for, for, the, for the perpetrator. And if that is the case, then that means that potential rapists, uh, you know, by and large, the men in, in this paradigm, will be far more uh, aware of the consequences of their actions and will will not be, uh, and that will act as a deterrent, and will not be, you know, live in a, a world where they feel as though they can almost get away with it at least the first time. And and so I, I wanted to bring you in, uh, Lauren, to have a chat about this. Uh, do you feel as though that would be, you know, that would be a step worth taking? And do you feel as though this is a huge problem? I feel like in theory that sounds great, but in reality, I don't know if that's possible. Um, both because of the legal process and the evidence required for a criminal conviction, also because of the fact that alcohol is a huge factor in a lot of these cases. And bringing that into the mix, there are often, um, there's often a lack of recollection. In this instance, um, the Brock Turner case, the woman, the victim, didn't even know that she was raped because she had passed out. It was only after she came to and kind of had a sense something was wrong that that this came to light. So um, I think we first of all need to consider that and maybe address it from all angles, not just a um, securing a conviction angle, which might not be the best best way to go about it. Wait, um, did Heidi say she wants the process to be that the university seeks a conviction, or is it? That, yeah, she or, thinks that she thinks that the university, not the university, seeks a conviction. That's for the for the police and the judicial mm. system. But she thinks that the university must play a greater role in supporting victims and in encouraging them to speak up if they have suffered abuse, and support them and provide resources for them so that they are not alone in the system going through. Uh, the reportage and the, you know, at times often invasive uh, examinations that follow and then through the long drawn out process and then having to relive it all at a trial. She thinks that the university must, as sort of a, a, a bastion of pastoral care, must support victims through this process. And she thinks that for, most, for the most part over the, you know, the last, you know, 500 years of university education, have just abrogated that responsibility and in fact have more been inclined to support the accused perpetrator by, you know, talking about, you know, this is affecting his future, this is going to uh, reduce his ability to be, you know, a functioning member of society, this is this is a stain on his reputation, you know. And so that that, that she thinks that that whole, uh, that whole dichotomy needs to be flipped so that we all rally around the victim and we call the perpetrator 
what the perpetrator is, and that's a rapist, instead of saying that they're a misunderstood person who drank too much one night. I think we should do that, but after we've exhausted due process and have found them guilty by, you know, the proper legal investigation, I think um, we want to be careful not to go too far in the opposite direction and um, immediately assume that if someone um, claims to have been raped that it's true because there have been cases where people have made this up although the majority of cases have not uh, involved that sort of um, you know misrepresentation uh, that has occurred so I think we need to be careful and also I don't know if Heidi's idea can really translate to the Australian context because we don't have the same campus culture that they do say in the US where Brock Turner um, studies or you know even in Europe where the campus really is your community it's where you live it's where you socialize it's where you do everything um, I don't know how um, that is that depends on what sort of student you are if you're a student who lives nearby your campus yes that's true uh, but if you're a student who say like I went to I went to a country university yes the campus is your culture the campus is your community if you're an international student certainly the campus is your culture and community so we do we while it's not like it's, it's not all pervasive to campus culture within uh, within Australian students. It certainly exists and there's certainly parallels to be drawn. Definitely, but um, my understanding is that the majority of Australian students don't live on campus and attend a university close to their hometown or because most people live in major cities, at least attend a university in the city in which they live. I tend to agree with Lauren on this point that we we in Australia, we have, obviously there are exceptions, but in Australia there is a culture of going to one of the universities that is in the city where you live and moving away interstate or, you know, more than three hours in the car from your home to go to uni is, is less common. Whereas in America, the prevailing culture is that you go to the other side of the country and that's part of the experience of uni is to get away from your family, which, you know, for the vast majority of people, your parents are your, you know, they're the people who give you the most guidance, the ones that make you feel guilty when you do the wrong thing. And when you're away from them, you know, that you do have that, I'm now free, you know, let's go to the party and drink until I pass out, which you unlikely to do if there's a fear that your parents will walk in on you and start wagging their finger and cutting you off financially. I have to say though, um, going back to James's earlier point about there perhaps being this culture in um, you know, specific sects of university life, such as colleges. Um, based on my limited interaction with those places, I have to say that, yes, I can see how that sort of environment can be fostered in, in university colleges in Australia. Guys, this has been a very good chat. Thanks very much for joining me for episode three of Talking Eds. Lauren, thank you very much. Earlylearningreview.com.au to read about uh, how cute babies yeah love who to doesn't like up. cute babies come and read about james educationreview.com.au and campusreview.com.au where you can read about smoking bans and listen to an interview with simone, simone dennis. dennis and you yep. can also uh, listen to my interview with uh, heidi lapalia regarding rape culture on universities and feel free to comment and offer your thoughts on all stories thanks very much thanks thanks bye